Hello and welcome to the Kalkatindi Show. We don't believe in ourselves enough to really go after our dreams. I had a purpose. I was in a marriage. I wasn't too happy with my relationship at the time. I don't know what it is yet, but I just, I really trust it. And it's, it's exciting to tap into it because you see little breadcrumbs of it, like little kind of tastes of different mm-hmm. kind of doors that you're opening up. I do genuinely believe mm-hmm. that if you have the confidence and the self-belief to achieve, that anything is is possible. I really can create change in this world. I really can help people. They've changed my life. They've completely revolutionized the way that I think and they've encouraged my highest self. And, um, you know, I think the foundations in those three books. Activate countdown. Five, four, three, two, one. All right, my guest today is Salah Ward. Salah is a Jewish doctor and she is the CEO of Ninava and Associates. Salah is known by some people as the former notorious attorney during Black Lives Matter, who defined the system, or one of the top female slam poets in the world, or the professional troublemaker for the National Organization for Women, the largest women's organization in the world. People have heard her speak in person, know that this wasn't her story. Before she became Salah Ward, Jewish doctor, she was Caramel, the sex worker. When you hear her speak live, she tells an addictive story of resilience and how you can be your own superhero, even when the world thinks that you're a villain. People have seen her on TLC's reality TV show. She's in charge. CNN, BET are on stage of the March for Women's Lives, the largest march in the history of the US for its time. But live, you get the behind the scenes of the real life version of how to get her with mother find out how salah ward jewish doctor went from bars to bars to bars to bars yet no bars can break the unbreakable salah ward welcome to the show hi thank you for having me thank you i appreciate that introduction you're welcome uh so salah you do have really uh, a very interesting story and a very inspiring story for a lot of young people especially young women you went from child sex worker in a crack cocaine community to an attorney and while you're 11 years old you lost your mom in a sort of crack cocaine deal that went bad and at the time you had two younger brothers waiting for their mom to come home some of one age aged for another one an infant you've definitely been just from knowing that little about your story it's you've definitely been through a lot right can you just give us a few highlights all a brief highlights of how your journey has been and how you came to to rise to to the level that you are at right now oh wow well i i didn't lose my mom my mom was shot uh, oh sorry oh sorry yeah, so I, I think it was really my mom, my mom and growing up in a community um, that really wasn't afraid of hearing that that no, that really gave me the resilience to keep moving forward. Um, my mom at 11 years old, she had actually started experimenting with crack before um, before I was 11, but 11 is when it started to kind of turn south. Mm. Um, she was in a crack cocaine deal. We was living in North Carolina at the time and she ended up getting shot and she just didn't 
um, come home. Um, I don't know if you, you've ever dealt with anybody that was addicted to crack cocaine. We don't call them addicts, you know, mm. in, in our community, we call them rock stars. You know, my, my, my parents, my family, my friends, they would never let us, you know, go and, you know, refer to somebody that was addicted to crack cocaine as a crackhead or, or a crack addict. So we, mm. we, we talked about rock stars and, and our family. Um, so she, uh, we were used to her not coming home sometimes, and we would call them missions, um, is what we called them. Missions was basically when they would kind of disappear for, you know, several days at a time, and then they would come back like two or three days later, like nothing ever happened, um, and just go back to life as, as, as normal or life as usual. So I was used to my mom leaving or disappearing on missions, but this, this particular experience was a little bit unique, and I, ironically, you know, it was around the same time of year that we are in now. It was around the Christmas holidays. Mm-hmm. And I remember coming home one day and I couldn't get into the house. The door was locked. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, which was which was unusual. There was a top lock and a bottom lock and I couldn't get in. Normally only one lock would be locked. I couldn't get in because the top lock was locked. So I remember having to, to break in my own house. I had to climb up a two-story balcony so that I can get in the sliding door. Mm. And my brothers, my brothers were, um, were, were in there. One of them was a baby, you know, he, you know, was not even a year old yet. Mm. He was less than six months old at that point. Um, and he's actually with me, you know, even to this day. And my other one was about four years old. And the one that was a baby had rolled off on the floor and he was oh. crying and knew that my mom was not, was gone for some reason at that point. Mm. Um, because they, you know, they didn't have anybody with them. And I waited for my mom to come back um, and a day went by, several days went by, a week went by um, and she still just didn't come home. And um, my grandparents who lived, you know, about four or five hours away at the time mm. called me on Christmas holidays. And she was like, okay, well, what does Santa Claus bring you guys for Christmas? And I told her, you know, that he hadn't brought anything because we hadn't seen my mom. And she was like, you know, she knew that that was unusual at the time because my mom, you know, even though she she had her challenges, she made sure that she always provided for us. Mm. That's where I got my by any means necessary, you know, m- mentality from, like making sure that we provide by any means necessary is because my mom had that by any means necessary. So we would always have Christmas, you know, mm. um, but this, you know, she just didn't come back. And um, and she didn't, you know, there was there was no Christmas this year. That was a red flag for my grandparents that they had to actually come and find out what was going on. And when they did come, they found out at that point that she had been shot and that she was in the hospital. So that was really the beginning um, of the journey that really changed my life moving forward. Wow. So then how, what inspired you to get into, into law? Was that the experience that was close to home that really pushed you to want to make a change somewhere? Absolutely. You know, because I, because I grew up in a community where, you know, police officers were regularly abusing people um, that were addicted to crack cocaine because they Mm. kind of disregarded the, the, um, the unwanted of the communities. I remember several times, you know, seeing my mom dragged out of our house and taken you know, um, and leaving us there. My dad, at that point when I was younger, he was taken by um, police officers and put into the prison industrial complex. Um, There was one time I remember that um, my mom, you know, I remember when I was younger, you know, my mom used to only, the, the, the time that my mom spent the most with me, right, when she would actually have like 
you know, detailed conversations was when she was getting hot. So uh, we would drive in the car and just drive around, you know, the neighborhood for hours and hours and hours while she got high in the car. And she was like, you're going to be my lookout. So I would look out mm. um, and, see, you know, check for police officers. Um, and one day, you know, we actually got stopped by a police officer. And I guess he could smell uh, the crack cocaine in the air because it has a very distinct bell to it when it's burned mm. and my mom you know was trying to get rid of it so she ended up swallowing the oh. crack cocaine before she got to the car oh. um and he knew that you know some that you know she had done something with it so he started to try to choke her to get her to cough it up i don't know why he wanted you know proof or whatever the case may be but he started to try to choke her mm. um and she just passed out you know and then she recovered but um i remember when she was trying to tell people that it happened, nobody would believe her. We went to the police department, nobody would believe her. You know, they was, you know, they just kind of disregarded her as somebody whose story didn't matter. And I knew when I was younger that, you know, I just wish that my family had the legal support team, you know, that other people had, you know, even if they did have crack cocaine addictions. So I always knew that if I wanted to kind of create that change, then I had to do it myself. And that's what initially um, inspired me to want to be that attorney so I can provide the justice for my community that they weren't getting. In addition to the fact that when I was eight years old, um, I, 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 there was a school play, mm. which this is what let me know that attorneys actually had, you know, the power to do something. Mm. There was a school play that they wanted to participate in. And my teacher um, you know, she was like, you know, I, I wanted to be the attorney in the play. She was like, well, maybe you'll be this other character or maybe you'll be here. And I was like, no, I'm going to be the attorney, mm. you know, and in the school, play, you know, we saw that the attorneys was defending people and protecting their rights and protecting mm. their lives. And I was really, really hardcore about at that point, I, it kind of clicked me like, that's what I want to do. Even mm. though my teacher didn't think that I knew it at the time, for some reason, I knew that that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be able to protect lives and protect people. Well, well, I can definitely see where the passion came from. And you did follow through and you became an attorney. And it's very interesting to hear someone with your kind of background, what you've been through, experiencing it firsthand because a lot of, like some, many people will have not experienced such situations. So they don't really understand what it means to actually go through that, right? And the reason I'm saying this is because you, when the Black Lives Matter movement exploded, right? In a good mm -hmm. way, definitely. You saw that as an opening to raise your voice and to make an impact and to make a change, right? Can you share with us what that journey has been like and what your personal experience was like when you decided that you're going to use this as an opening to make the change that you're making? I don't think that it was a conscious um, decision just to kind of um, to, to use laws, you know, as a, as a journey for Black Lives Matter. You know, actually, when I got into law, I realized, you know, that attorneys didn't have as much power as I thought that they had, and they couldn't do as much as I thought that they could do uh, for the community. You know, I, I was told by judges several times that our only purpose was to facilitate criminals so that they understood what was happening to them, not necessarily to get them off. Um, so I, it was never really a conscious decision like, hey, I'm gonna do this so that I can help you know, people in the Black Lives Matter movement. I really, in the beginning, I just wanted to start off just helping my family. I just wanted to save my family. That's, that's the ones that I wanted to save. Um, in the process, you know, once I became an attorney, 
you know, I would see several cases where there were people that didn't have the representation that they needed. And I knew that they were not doing the things they were accused of, or if they had been doing the things, some, some things they weren't necessarily doing the things uh, that the, the prosecution was saying that happened to them, or they had gotten abused in, in the particular encounter with the officers that they were dealing with. So I knew that just that, you know, they needed representation, they needed a voice. And if I had to be that voice, then, you know, it was important to me to, to stand up. I mean, there was a lot of sacrifice that happened in it because anytime you see, especially in a state where there's only 300 black attorneys in the entire state, mm. you know, anytime you see, you know, black attorneys standing up for other black people, there's going to be a lot of pushback. There's going to be a lot of resistance. A lot of people didn't like, like it. Um, myself and, and my partner at the time, you know, she had come from um, up north. So she was a black female attorney as well. So we were one of very few, you know, black female attorneys in the city. Um, but, you know, we went hardcore to try to defend and stand up for our clients and take up for um, for the wrongs that had been done against them. And I mean, we got pushed back from judges. You know, we got pushed back from prosecutors, pushed back from police officers. I, I can't tell you how many times I got stopped. I learned, I had to purposely learn not to tell police officers that I was a defense attorney, right? Mm -hmm. I initially thought that, um, that if, you know, I would let them know that, that they would see that, you know, hey, we're on the same side, you know, we're all defending justice. I'm an officer of the court too. And mm -hmm. it just didn't happen that way. <laughs> yeah. It was like, uh, let me tell the, the first time that I told a police officer, that I was uh, an attorney. I remember there was like, you know, there was a big traffic um, stop in the street and I was trying to go to the right of somebody. Mm. And they they kind of flipped me over. Um, and the police officer was asking me where I was going. I was like, I'm on my way to court. And they was like, oh, what, why are you on your way to court? You know, I was like, oh, I'm an attorney. So I got to go, you know, and um, handle a case. And it was like, oh, okay, really? He's are you a prosecutor? And I was like, no, I'm not a prosecutor. I'm a defense attorney. He's like, all right, let me, let me go talk to, uh, my sergeant, <laughs> you know, I was like, okay, go try to do that. I thought he was going to be like, oh yeah, you know, she's an officer of the court, you know, da, 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 da. you know, he came back and mm -hmm. gave me like uh, two tickets that were both what? worth like point. Yes. What? Like it was ridiculous. <laughs> it oh. was horrible. Like so bad. I was like, dang, I thought we was cool. Was so <laughs> wow. <laughs> I had to learn, you know, wow. uh, that, uh, that that wasn't necessarily that some something that they could find solidarity yeah. in. Yeah, that's that's the big conversation we are going to talk about next. So, so that one of the questions I want to ask you: be you being a black woman and being an attorney, it is it is a. I don't know how to phrase this. It's like you're carrying two burdens. Like it's double trouble. I don't know if that makes sense. I mean, it's it's already the kind of society we are living in and the kind of challenges we are dealing with one women not being given enough recognition and being given the platforms and you know equality right that's one but then being black now that's two right so you have two big challenges that you're dealing with what have you what has been what have been some of your experiences as a black attorney and a black woman in such a position what are some of the, the experiences you've had or challenges that you've faced? I, I think that there's been a, there's been a long history of challenges. Yeah, yeah. Um, as as a black woman, um, fortunately, growing up in the community, that I did. You know, when you're dealing with rock stars, rock stars they don't take um, no very very easily. Like they just when they hear no, you know they you know they just keep moving forward. They go after whatever their goal is. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember you know we had rock stars in our community. 
And like my uncle, he would come up and ask me for $5. Like every time I come home, he'll ask me for $5. And I'd be like, no, I ain't got $5. And then the next day he'll be like, no, let me get $5. And I'm like, no, I don't have $5. And the third day he'll still ask me for $5 again. Like I never asked, like I never told him no, right? He he just mm-hmm. kept asking me for it. And he would ask you for it so many times. And eventually he'd be like, here's $5, fine. You know, just go away. Don't ask mm-hmm. me no more. Um, and, and what this did for me is it taught me, you know, that, no only meant that the person that you were communicating with didn't really understand the offer that you were presenting to them. And it taught me not to be afraid of no in any circumstance that I was dealing with. I go after what I want Mm. because of the rock stars that I grew up with that told me not to be afraid of Mm. hearing no, you know? So there was a lot of things that I had to go through, especially because I had a very, um, I had a very controversial history um, in sex work and, you know, dealing with the crack cocaine community, uh, dealing with drug dealers, even before I became an attorney, they told me no a hundred times before I ever became licensed. They told me no. And even after I became licensed, you know, I I heard no several times from judges, from prosecutors, from police officers. I I heard no on a regular basis. But because I had that resilience that was uh, that was that that was kind of raised in me just from dealing with communities that heard no all their life. Mm -hmm. I wasn't afraid of it. And I knew that I just needed to really rephrase the question anywhere I went. Mm. Sala, what was the turning point in your life? Because I, I, we kind of like skipped over this, but from you mentioned about doing uh, child sex work, how did you even get into that? Of course, the community I understand was part of the problem, but how did you, what was the turning point for you to actually change the trajectory of your life from doing that to actually getting onto the, the path that led you doing what you do today? Would you remember any any particular point that changed everything? Well, initially, I, I never felt like it was a problem. It was mm. just life. I grew in my community at the time. Everybody was was growing up in that type of um, environment, so everybody was long. used to it. So it didn't feel like a problem, you know. Not to mention that, you know, I I don't really see things as bad experiences. I just try to take everything as a lesson or a blessing in life. And that was just one of the lessons that I had to go through to get to the journey that I'm experiencing now. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think that the biggest thing is that I always had vision. You know, Mm -hmm. I always had vision. You have to get to a point where you can see what it is you want. You have to be able to visualize it. And there can't be any alternatives. You know, having no backup plans really (laughs) was what pushed me. It was like, you know what? Either like, honestly, like I, I, I completely, you know, know that it's probably not the PC thing to say, but all my life growing up, I always was like, you know, either I'm going to be attorney or I'm going to run the biggest whorehouse in Texas, one or the other. <laughs> like I'm going one or the other, you know, there is no alternative. So I wasn't, um, I wasn't willing to compromise on that. Like I knew what it was that I want the entire time. And, and I knew that what I was experiencing was just, it was a comma in my life and not a period. And that was important to me to know that so that I couldn't stand in where I was at. I had to be able to keep walking through my journey. There was a lot of times that I did want to be like, you know, what, I'm tired. I want to stop. Why I don't want to do this anymore. Or nobody likes me or everybody thinks I'm a bad person. And I have a you know criminal record and, you know, they think that I'm like not trustworthy or they think that, you know, I'm not honest or, you know, I'm not reliable, you know, so I should just give up, you know. But because I had that vision and especially because I came from a community where I was already, you know, the, you know, at the bottom of the barrel, it was like I had nowhere to go but up, 
you know, so um, it really helped me to kind of define my own my own superhero to create that superhero that nobody else had solved, but just for myself. Wow. Sala, let's talk about the bigger conversation about Black Lives Matter, right? So what what are you seeing? Do you think these these the, the progress is going to actually do you feel like it's it's permanent progress or do you feel like this is there's still a lot more that needs to be done? I feel like it's been a, it's been so strong so far, but what do you have to what's your opinion on that? Well, I, I do think that that our movement is strong now, but our movement has been here for a while. A lot of people um, want to feel like we just started getting momentum and that this movement just started, but it's been going on for a while. The difference now, um, I do believe, is that there's uh, there's been a lot of people sitting at home during coronavirus, so that now they can pay attention to what's happening. Mm. Um, prior to coronavirus, people had a lot of activities going on. We had a lot of distractions. So even though we would hear about all of these situations that happened with police brutality around the country, um, and in a lot of cases, we would even See it because there was video prior to 2020. Um, 2020 was the moment that everybody had to stand still and really be present for what was going on with Black people around the world, right? So the world actually stood up and said, wait a minute, right? This is a problem um, and we got to do something about it. One of my goals when, when dealing with the Black Lives Matter movement is not just to see this as um, something that's happening on a local level. This is an international human rights problem that we have to address. So people around the world really need to be paying attention to what's happening here. And it, and it is happening now. Um, the um, International Human Rights um, Commission is actually paying attention to it and, and doing investigations in it on a worldwide basis. Um, but I think that that's primarily because the world had to sit still for a while. And when they sat still and got rid of the distractions, um, they could see what that what we were saying was the truth. And it's, it's so powerful um, the the metaphor that I heard that really spoke to me um, was that, you know, it's kind of like when you, you tell your mother, you know, all your life that your father is abusing you, that your mm. father is mm. molesting you, that your father is doing something to you and your, your whole life, your mom is like, well, what did you do? You know, or you just, you know, that didn't happen. Or, you know, your father was just disciplining you like he's supposed to do, you know, and one day, you know, you wake up and your mother finally says, you know what? I, I believe you, you know, I see what's happening and I'm sorry that I didn't pay attention earlier. It's like this exhale moment when you're like, finally, you know, you're kind of like, finally, yes, you know, this is, this is what I've been waiting for, you know? So I think that um, this is the exhale moment, you know, that uh, black people around the world are experiencing. Um, and now because of the coronavirus, people have the, the option and the opportunity to listen and pay attention. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you this because I'm personally curious and I, you're the perfect person to ask this because you are in the system so you know what this, how the system runs, right? When these police officers who literally murdered George Floyd, right? What, why weren't these people arrested immediately? What is wrong with the system? Why were they not recognized as criminals when the whole world saw that actually they murdered a black man? in front of the day during the day. <laughs> yeah. Is that right. a problem with the system? Right. I, is that particular people in the system? Why is the problem and what exactly needs to be done? Well, the first thing that I, I want to recognize is that, you know, when we when we say systematic racism, it allows a lot of uh, police officers and people within the system to get a, um, anonymity 
that I don't think that they deserve. So I don't like to really um, blame everything on systematic oppression or systematic racism because there's individual people that we have to hold responsible for their actions. Um, in respect to, to George Floyd, I do think that there were systematic things in place that allowed um, the officers to be able to walk away from that scene. First of all, police officers in general have um, a limited immunity when they're dealing with uh, the public. You know, so there's a higher standard that has to be proven um, to show that they committed a crime. Um, so I, I think that there are some systematic errors um, that need to be addressed that we really need to reform um, officers' jobs. I do believe in defunding the police, um, but I think that that needs to be clarified what it means to defund the police. Um, I think that a lot of people think that it means that we're not going to have any you know, police officer is at all, and there's not going to be no protection around the community at all. When in reality, what it means is that we're uh, we're taking away the heavy equipment and the military style um, experience that police are are using on on regular citizens, right? So we're taking away the money for the the, the artillery um, and and all of the equipment that they really use in some cases to terrorize black people. Um, so I do think, yes, I think that there's some systematic errors, um, but it's, at the same time, it's really important to hold those individuals responsible um, that actually committed the crime and, and making sure that they don't get an anonymity in this particular process. Um, let's talk about Black Lives Matter, the organization, it is said well, that there is a lot of hatred that that this has is doing more. Well, some people claim it's doing spreading more hatred than unity. Do you think that is a reality, or is that some sort of like people who don't who want to kind of like drive the main the to cause a distraction from the main issue? Because the hatred, I, I guess, is, can be justified based on what you know black people are experiencing, but do you feel like the organization is actually in contributing to that, basically spreading hatred? Do you agree with that? Do you think that's right? Or I don't think it's correct. Um, I okay. do not think that the Black Lives Matter organization is, is spreading hatred. But I do think that there's a narrative um, with the, the radical conservative right um, that they're using as basically scare tactics, fear tactics to use as leverage um, in campaigns, um, you know, in the election process. Um, if you know a little bit about, you know, my experience, I'm, I have uh, some some history with Senator Kelly Leffler um, here in, in Georgia. Mm -hmm. And actually, you know, I, when I went to Kelly Leffler's first event, I really just went as a, as a constituent. As a citizen, just wondering like what she's going to do for me as her constituents. She had a um, a campaign event here, um, and during the event, myself and and my sister in the movement, Triana Arnold James, who ran for lieutenant governor, she um we you know we asked her what you know what she was going to do for the black people um, mm -hmm. that were being murdered here in Georgia. And as soon as we asked that question, it created this anger and this hate in everybody that was around us, like everybody all of a sudden um, started to get uh, really angry. Like it was a room of about a hundred of her supporters um, mm. at the time that's surrounding us. And what she did at that time is that she saw it as an opportunity um, to be able to rally them around hate, mm. right? She saw it as an opportunity to let them know, hey, you know, if you hate, if you hate this right here, then vote for me, right? Mm. Um, so she started telling them that, you know, 
this is what I'm talking about. These are the 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 radical Black Lives support, supporters that's coming to take you know everything that you have away from you. Mm. She started to call us communists. She was calling us Marxists. Um, she was calling us Antifa, which at the time I was like, what the hell is Antifa? <laughs> like I was like, I'm not Antifa. I've never met Antifa. I know what <laughs> you know. You yeah. know. So she, I mean, she was calling us all types. And she said that we were anti-nuclear family, and she was saying these things to our face, mm. right? At the time, we were just coming as her constituents. But unfortunately, she made it apparently and abundantly clear that she didn't represent us. You know, she didn't give she didn't care about us. She only represented people um, that looked like her. So at the time, you know, as, as she was, you know, really trying to egg on this hate, right, because she saw it as an opportunity to motivate people to vote around her campaign. Um, you know, everybody started surrounding us at the event and they, they tried to lock arms at the time mm. and they were starting to yell initially. Um, they started, they, they started to yell out all lives matter, you know, and they did that over and over and over again. And mm. then they started to, to, um, yell Kelly, 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 you know, at one point they even started to try to say, you know, um, black lives ain't shit, you know, but they couldn't get enough people to, to jump on that. But they had a whole lot of hate, right? And the hate was coming from uh, the politicians that wanted to leverage that hate for some type of personal, uh, financial, or political gain. Um, and I, I do believe that the people there, you know, I, I do believe that they legitimately feared, you know, people that supported Black Lives Matter, but not because there was something to fear, but because everybody that was surrounding them in their community was telling them that people that looked like us were coming to take everything away from them mm-hmm. and that we didn't have the same morals or values and that we essentially weren't even the same type of quality people. They didn't have an understanding of who we were. Um, at the end of the event, they end up keying our car. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, um, I mean, they it, it was so, it was so horrendous. Um, and I, I really didn't realize that they, you know, they hated you know, people that supported Black Lives Matter so much. Um, a lot of times when we're on social media, we're we're constantly in this echo chamber where all we hear on social media is people that that agree with the same ideas that we agree with. Mm-hmm. So this was one of the few times that I got the opportunity to be surrounded in a room of people that felt like they had a hate others that supported Black Lives Matter. But I was able to see it firsthand how it started because when Mm. they first saw us, they wanted to connect to us. When we first came there, we just came there as constituents, right? Mm. And they didn't really necessarily hate us simply because of our color. Mm. They didn't start to create that hate until there were elected officials that were telling them that they should be afraid of us. And we saw their eagerness to have a conversation with us and befriend us completely turned into them hating us and wanting to hurt us. In fact, afterwards, we even got life threats where they said, you know, we should be shot, you know, or that, you know, they should just go out and and get a gun and shoot us in the back. You know, so it was it was so many threats that came simply out of politicians creating the fear. So I don't think no, I don't think that Black Lives Matter creates hate um, around the country. But I do think that there is a conservative um, political right agenda that tries to use hate mm. for their own person. Yeah, and for the record, I completely support the Black Lives Matter organization. I think they've done a tremendous job and they still continue to do a tremendous job to you know, make the awareness that you know Black Lives Matter and they're educating a lot of people, right? But I want to know, in your opinion, 
what role do you think as black people we need to play right now in these times you know to how should we play our role without spreading hatred and creating unity even in the amidst opposition right and sometimes very mm. opposition in very like the experiences you're describing right how can we stay composed and not give in to the to the to the assumptions they have about black people right um, there's a lot of work that needs to be done and just for, you know, on the surface level, the initial things that need to be done, the very initial things, because like I said, it is a lot, it's a lot deeper than um, what we're doing on the surface right now, because there are generations um, of a certain um, mindset that we have to overcome a as a nation and as, as a world. But um, on the very surface, first thing is that we are still in elections right now. People don't realize um, that the elections are not over, right? There's a lot of states that have runoffs. So make sure that you go and participate in your runoffs. Make sure your voice is heard. Vote again, even if you already voted in the first time, because right now, if your state has a runoff for certain offices, your original vote may not be counted if you don't go and do it again. So make sure you participate um, in the runoffs that's happening in your local community. That's the number one important thing. Um, number two, <clears throat> It's very important um, that we keep standing up and we keep protesting. A lot of people um, regularly ask, you know, why do you want, why, why should we keep protesting? Why should we keep beating the streets? You know, I'm tired of going out here and yelling and screaming and getting arrested and seeing nothing happen. Um, and people get discouraged. But one of the benefits of protesting, we have to understand, is that about 25% of it um, that we see, 20 to 25% of what we see in protesting, happens in the immediate, um, in the immediate time frame. So we might see, like we saw with the Black Lives Matter uh, protesting um, around George Floyd. We saw several states um, create legislation that supported Black Lives Matter. We saw um, police um, police chiefs around the country making statements about uh, about their position on Black Lives Matter. So it actually really did start to take effect on on a local level in the immediate time. But that's only about twenty percent of the twenty to twenty five percent of the effect. Seventy five percent of the effect is the mindsets. Um, that change over generations. Um, people start to change in general, and that comes from seeing other people that are standing up and saying, hey, I agree with this, or I have to be counted in this situation. I have experienced this too. I have seen this too, and I know that this is unfair. Our country right now is built on, um, the main thing that they're built on, the legitimacy of it is that um, they're being fair, that they're working for all, the benefit of all people, right? So once we go in and we challenge that legitimacy and we show that there's, you know, the majority of people are actually not being taken care of by the government, that's when their legitimacy no longer is considered. That's when people start saying, OK, wait a minute, we need to do something because the government is not working um, prior to. George Floyd event, the majority of the world didn't actually support Black Lives Matter, especially white people. They they thought that it was, you know, bull crap. After George Floyd, the event happened mm -hmm. and the protests were occurring around the world. Now, 76% of white people believe that racism is a problem and a big problem. And that comes from people standing up and saying, hey, I want to be seen. I have to be counted. And I have experienced this, too. So mm -hmm. even though you not see the immediate effects of protesting and demonstrating and standing up in civil disobedience. It's happening, but 75% of what's happening is not happening in the immediate. So keep going out there, keep protesting and keep making sure that your voice is heard. Nice. 
and you mentioned the election so you're trying to you're telling me that there's a chance that the election could be overturned you think so no um i'm I'm not saying that the election can be overturned. I'm saying right now there mm. are runoffs that are happening around the country. Mm. A lot of people don't realize, uh, a lot of people think that, you know, after they voted in November, then that was just it, right? Mm -hmm. But a lot of the local uh, positions, the local oh, yeah. offices are still being voted on. Uh -huh. So we have to sure that you are partic participating in your runoffs. Go back and vote again, right? Even yeah. if you voted in make sure if your state is having a runoff for a particular office that you're going back and voting again yeah and uh, speaking of uh, elections uh, do you think the new administration will actually do you think that the president trump leaving office will actually have um i don't want to get too political but do you think there'll be a difference I'm hoping that there's going to be a difference, you know, like I, you know, whether you, whether you believe it, you can or whether you can't believe you can't, they say you're right. So I have to believe in the positive. I have to believe that we are going to walk into a better place um, in this upcoming 2021, 2022, 2023 and 2024 year. Um, now, keep in mind, Trump said that if he doesn't get this election, he said he's coming back in 2024. So we got to watch <laughs> out for that as well. He's a hilarious kind of person he's a hilarious uh, character he is he, he uh, is he's he is funny i don't want i don't, want know, to hide but, it. Uh, I don't like the man i don't want to hide it i don't like the man i think he's uh he's not a re a good example to people and to the entire world america being in a superpower he's not given a very good example to other leaders in terms of how they should conduct themselves and how they should handle different issues in fact, I don't know, some people may, may dislike me for saying this or may not even like the show, but I think he's a disgrace as a person. He's, he, doesn't, he doesn't have morals, he doesn't have values. He may be smart in terms of business and in terms of you know economics, but the most important thing is people. People make the country, right? So mm -hmm. he doesn't value people, that's number one. And he has made it clear in very different ways that he doesn't value black lives and you know he has disgraced he has you know referred to african countries as whatever you know he said so it's it's really a really terrible thing <laughs> so i'm glad he's out of office actually so i hope that the new administration will actually support the efforts that people are contributing around the around the world and especially in america because that's where the, the movement started so yeah, I'm glad that Mr. Trump is is not coming back anytime soon. <laughs> yeah, that was a positive. With all the negatives we had in 2020, that was one of the positives. Yeah, yeah, I was, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I did celebrate that. I think there needs to be a change. There needs to be a change. But it was. Uh, I, I, yeah, I, I put out on, on social media that I was so excited yeah. about the season finale Trump shit show. <laughs> <laughs> like it was a phenomenal season finale like that was an unforgettable season finale in 2020 yeah but but you know what's interesting even with all that he has done and people see it's very clear it's still interesting that so many people still gravitate towards him uh i don't know i find that a bit i find that strange do you think at times i'm tempted to think that probably those people share the same 
kind of values. I, I don't know. It's as him. They share the same sentiments. Oh. I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. We, I, we, I'm not very good with political talk, but that's just how I feel. You know what? What it did is that you know there there were people that agreed with Trump even before he he went into office. Um, I'm actually doing a. Um, a program right now with one of my mentors, Loretta Ross, on white supremacy um, and how the Trump administration has reignited it and the and, and being able to deep dive into um, the generation of white supremacy that's going to come out of the Trump administration. Keeping in mind that just because Trump is out of office right now does not mean that the white supremacy is going to end. What he did is that he made it OK for an entire group of people to show that they don't like certain others, right? He made it okay for them um, to, to basically be who they always were in the first place. Yeah. So just because he's not in office right now doesn't mean that it's going to end. Um, we definitely have to be prepared for this new generation of white supremacy um, that's going to be coming out of the Trump administration. Well, but well, like you said, at least that's one positive that has come out of 2020 and yeah, so what do you think i want i don't want to this to me because i don't want this to sound like you know we are running against uh white people i do love white people i have a number of friends for white people a number of guests on this show for white people what do you think we should be telling our white brothers and sisters how should we be helping them to understand the situation and to understand why things are the way they are and what the role needs to be or to educate them basically one of the one things you know on on a on a more micro level um that i think that we have to get across to white people um it's, especially when it comes to police brutality and and black lives matter um is to get them to understand um that they don't that, they, that the fear that they're experiencing was created on an artificial level. I do think that a lot of times, you know, like we have this big, you know, um, surge of white women around the country, all the Karens calling police on, on people of color. Um, and just to be clear, when I call, I, I've had some people come at me and say that they didn't feel comfortable or that they felt a little offended by the fact that I used the term Karen and they felt like that was a derogatory term for white women. Irons, I mean, specifically people that use their um, their privilege to oppress a community that does not have that privilege. That's specifically what a Karen is, right? Um, it's not just a term that's used to describe white women in general. Um, but there's this generation of, of Karens that are coming out here um, and they feel like they have to be the slave overseers. That's essentially what they're doing. A lot of times they don't even realize um, where the history of policing comes from and its roots um, to be able to to keep the slave trade intact, right? So they feel like they have to come in and be these overseers and they need to call the police anytime they see a person of color or an oppressed community getting out of line, which is why we see all these barbecue peckies. We see, you know, the Amy's, you know, that are calling police on black men, um, you know, while they're walking their dogs. We see, you know, the police officers breaking into um, black men apartments and killing them and shooting them dead saying that they were intoxicated and they thought that there was their own place we're seeing this rage 
of, of violence against people of color by white women across the country. Um, and a lot of it is coming from fear, fear that um, a lot of these radicals um, have created um, just to, for personal gain, for, for money or for politics or whatever. So the first thing that we have to do is we have to address the fear because no matter what we say on a political level, if they are still afraid, you know, mm. because of what they've heard and because of what has been told to them all their lives, they're still going to have the same reaction, even as, if it's behind closed doors. Um, so we have to really address the fear that a lot of white people um, and white women are experiencing. Now, fear comes from a place of memories. Fear comes from um, remembering bad experience from the past. It might not be a bad experience that you personally had. It could be um, a negative experience that you saw on TV. It could be a negative experience that you saw in the news or the media or a negative experience that your friend or family member told you about, but it's coming from a memory, right? Mm -hmm. a, a memory of negative experience. And, and the best way to counter the memory of a negative experience is to create new experiences. Um, so I do think that we need to create, that white people need to work on creating new experiences around people of color that are positive. Um, a lot of these white people that are calling the police that are shooting people in their community like Ahmaud Arbery, um, they don't have experiences with black people. Black people don't live in their neighborhoods. They don't go to their schools. You know, they don't see them in the supermarket. They don't see them at their job. They don't have a lot of experiences with black people and people of color. So they need to go out and they need to, to create more positive experiences. Just because somebody doesn't look like you doesn't mean that you can't take initiative. And because black people have been oppressed in several communities, it might mean that you might have to be the one that speaks up first. You can't mm -hmm. wait for us to come to you. Educate yourself on what has happened with the oppression of black people. Um, I'm also the chair of the um, International uh, Black Business Agenda. And we, we have a, um, a, a guide that's called the eight, eight Steps to Misplace Fear. And it uses the acronym MISPLACE um, to help people make better decisions around when they should call the police. Mm. Um, but one of the things is, you know, like making sure that if it's a mental health issue um, that you're addressing with, there are mental health numbers that you can call instead of calling 911, mm. right? Um, making sure that you have the mental health line in your state on, you know, speed dial or saving your phone um, so that if you're dealing with somebody that has a mental health issue, that you're calling the appropriate um, agency. Um, that's involved with it. Um, making sure that you have a, a system that's in place where if you're dealing with an administrative uh, issue like barbecuing or like somebody you know, selling water in the streets that you're calling an administrative agency. If it's not involving, you know, the threat of your life or the threat of your property or your safety, then you should not be calling the police because calling the police on a black person could mean that they die, right? It's, it's, yeah. it's not just used as an administrative number. And then having conversations with your community um, about um, having systems in place that they use instead of calling the police in general. A lot of these businesses, you know, instead of um, mitigating circumstances and training their employees on how to handle black people that they may not have grown up with, they're just telling their employees, just call the police, right? So and we see situations where police are coming to Starbucks um, in other places just because the employees called them because they didn't know what to do when they were confronted by a black person that was really, you know, doing nothing except mm -hmm. for, you know, what he was supposed to be doing. So as in general, white people need to have systems in place that they use instead of calling the police and number two, creating new experiences. 
Wow. Well, thank you so much for that. Elaborating on that, um, that is very informative and I'm sure it's going to bring a lot of value to the uh, white brothers and sisters who are listening. All right, uh, Sola, let's go into some quick fire questions. Are you ready? Sure, sure. Sounds good. Yeah, it's a little, we're going to switch gears a bit, but we're still on the same page. So what is your definition of success? My definition of success, it, my, it used to be the earned right to do nothing in my life. Oh. <laughs> like I want the earned right where I can sit back with the people that I love and do absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. So it used to be that? It used to be that. Now I'm redefining. I just found a new happiness in my life mm. that I'm experiencing now. So I'm excited about creating this new definition of success and what it means in this in this stage of my life now. So I haven't created this new definition yet, but okay. I'm in a happy space in that pro- um, I'm eager to create. You're in the process of creating it? Yes. Awesome. Uh, do you have a favorite book? My favorite book is The Sacred Yes. Um, it's written by Deborah Johnson. Um, oh. And it's kind of it's my, my spiritual guide that I, I really read to meditate um, and create a connection with God and myself on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Nice. And what are some of the habits that have propelled you forward in life that without them probably you wouldn't have accomplished what you've accomplished so far? Um, being able to reframe my experiences into a positive, no matter what I was going through, even if it was a negative or one of the worst experiences I was having in my life, always being able to reframe it into a positive. Nice. And what is one skill you think anyone who wants to succeed in life should learn? They need to know how to sell. Oh, nice. Interesting. Why, why is that? Um, because everything that we do in life is about the ability to convince um, uh, either ourselves or another group of people to be able to do something um, that is going to be beneficial right. to either ourselves or the world. Um, and if you don't, I, if you're not able to articulate that, um, then we can't drive our community forward. And mm-hmm. um, what is one key lesson you've learned during this pandemic? During the pandemic? Yes. Um, I, I love that the world has learned that people that work from home actually have jobs <laughs> and that we have things to do. Um, I yeah. think that historically before the pandemic, people would assume that if you work from home, it means that you was unemployed. Mm-hmm. And now people are forced <laughs> to respect people that work from homes. I love that. <laughs> That's very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> interesting. Um, what is the one thing you're most grateful to have in your life right now? I am grateful to have love. Oh, nice. All right. Uh, before we wrap up, can we talk about Ninava and Associates? Can sure, you tell sure. us how, so, what you do and what kind of services you offer and any other projects that are currently working on? Sure. So Ninava and Associates is one of the um, largest business architect firms in the Southeast. Um, what we do is we help um, small to medium-sized businesses scale their companies from hustle to, to enterprise. A lot of times entrepreneurs are really trying to wing it and they're trying to reinvent the wheel and um, create a process or a system from scratch. Mm. Um, and they, they oftentimes feel overwhelmed or lost mm. or lonely in the process because they have 
every hat. So they have to be their accountant. They have to be the customer service. They have to be sales. They have to be marketing. They have to be human resources. They have to be bookkeeping. They have to be everything in the company and they end up feeling drained. Um, and like, they just want to go back to a 40 hour a week job because now they're working 80 hours now. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we do is we go in and we give them a proven system. We create proven systems within their com- company that have already been tested. So we create the system and document it from the point that they walk into the office, cut on the lights, sit at the computer, from the points that they're doing their paperwork, their, house, their housekeeping, their bookkeeping, the points that they're selling, um, documenting finances. We come in and we're their co-CEO. We're working in their business with them um, so that they don't have to constantly reinvent the wheel all the time and they mm. know exactly what ne- what's the next step that they need to get to in order to be able to get to the enterprise level. Um, That's typically what most uh, business architect firms do. But the thing that differentiates us from other business architect firms is that most of our clients um, are not just clients that want to have a law firm or not just clients that want, you know, to have a medical practice. Our clients generally want to be the Johnny Cochran of law or the Susie Orman of financial advising or the Dr. Phil of medicine. So in addition to making sure that we build the infrastructure of their company, we also take our clients on tour around the world now, especially with the pandemic, um, so that they can become thought leaders in their industry. Now, just to give you a little bit of information about the difference between a thought leader um, and an expert. An expert can tell you how to do something. They can say do A, B, and C and get to D. A thought leader is somebody that's going to make you think differently about their subject area. So mm. we have thought leaders um, as clients um, that tour around the country and around the world um, at conferences, colleges, and universities and events on an international level to be able to um, expand their thought leadership and become authorities in the industry. Um, the third thing that we do that's a little more that's a little different than other business architect firms is that we um, one of the things we learned during the pandemic is that every company needs to have a digital stream of income. Even if you are a traditional brick and mortar company, you don't have to always be there to physically touch your customers. Right. Um, having to physically touch your customers prevents you from being able to scale or yeah. to retire or or to spend time with the people that you love. So what we do for our clients is that regardless of the industry, we go in and build a digital stream of income for, the, for them so that they can always stay in business no matter what. Nice. And what is your number one social platform for someone who wants to connect with you? The best way to get in contact with me, well, the the, so, the, the number one social media platform that you can reach me on um, is Facebook or Instagram. You can reach me on my Instagram at Salah Ward. Um, my name is spelled a little differently because everybody, they want to pronounce the N. Yeah. Um, but it's um, Salah, N, like S-E-L-A-A. Yeah. Um, Ward W A R D. So you can find me on Instagram at Salah Ward. You can find me on Facebook on um, at Salah Ward fan page. Um, so it's uh, facebook.com backslash Salah Ward fan page. Mm-hmm. You can reach me on any of those platforms. I very rarely look at LinkedIn, okay. <laughs> even though I just hit me on LinkedIn. Um, so it came up on my phone, but I very rarely, you know, it was just, it just, it was happenstance that I happened to see that at that point. Um, my Twitter is Salah Ward as well, but the best platforms to reach me is either Instagram or Facebook. Um, they can also reach me on my website. Um, there's some contact forms. They can book a consultation on my website um, at uh, www.ninavafirm.com, which is N-I-N-A-V-A-F-I-R-M.com, N-I-N-A-V-A-F-I-R-M.com. And we can just sit down um, and we can do a, a strategy session together for free. You can go to the website and it'll allow you to book something together where we can figure out what your next steps are in your business. 
Awesome. And all those links for our listeners are going to be in the show notes. You can uh, find uh, Salah's Instagram, uh, Facebook page, and the website. All right, Salah, this is the final question. This is the question that I ask every guest on the show. So what would you say to someone listening right now who is about to give up, who is frustrated that they're not getting the results they want? This person wants to make progress towards their goals, but feels stuck and has no idea what to do next. What advice do you have for this person? Hmm. Well, I, I will say that when I was a teenager, I was hmm. I was very sad when I wanted to I wanted to leave this world, and I was grateful that. Um, somebody had enough vision to be able to let me know that it was going to get better. So no matter what's going on right now, you know, just understand that this is just a comma in your life, not a period. It's not the end. You have to keep moving forward. It's going to get better. Um, but you have to keep moving through and walking through the storm in order to get to the other side. Wow. And on that note, Salah, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show, sharing with us your story, your knowledge, your experiences, and other lessons you've taught us. I've had a great time having this conversation with you, especially on the topic that I'm very that is very close to home, first of all. So um, thank you so much. This has been an amazing conversation, and I'm sure the listeners have gotten a lot of value out of it. So thank you. Thank you for having me. Yes, and I definitely love to come back. Oh yeah, sure. I was about to say that. <laughs> Would love to have you back. I think there is so much more <laughs> that we need to talk about, and yeah, I'll be excited for the next time. Thanks for joining me this week on the Kawika Tende Show. Subscribe to the podcast so that you'll never miss an episode. And if you found value in this show, I'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you simply tell a friend about the show, that would really help us a lot to grow. Thanks again for listening. See you next week. Take care.